0: And we frequently harden our hearts to you. But we ask, our Lord, that today you would, by your Spirit, speak to us through our new hearts that you have given us. We ask that you would give us clarity to see the sin in us anew. We ask that you might give us grace so that we can hear your call to repent and be changed. And we thank you for Jesus, who crushes sin and death and gives us new life. Amen. It's perfect. Everything is just right. Created just the way it's meant to be. Beautiful in its perfection. The potter steps back from his work and admires it. It's good. It's just the right blend of colours. The perfect form. His best work yet. And then it changes. A stray movement of his arm and the vase begins to topple. He reaches for it, tries to steady it, but he can't. And in the blink of an eye, everything is shattered. The vase is no longer on the table. It's now in a million pieces all over the floor. Try as he might, he can never restore the image of what it was. He can never put it back together. Such is the story that we're faced with, as we roll into Genesis 3. We've spent the last two weeks looking at God's beautiful, perfect creation. We've seen the perfection that God has made in every aspect. We've seen humankind be raised to the pinnacle of that perfection and charged with the divine responsibility of caring and tending for God's creation. We've seen man made in God's image and likeness, placed in the beautiful Garden of Eden, And given a helper, made from his own flesh, and that it was good, very good. Everything just the way it was meant to be. But almost in the blink of an eye, it changes. What was perfectly made is now broken and scarred in a way that can't be undone. What was good and perfect is now marred with the scars of sin let's pick up on the story that we've just read. Now, the servant was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? As we read it, the subtleties of this story are easy to gloss over. And you'd be given forgiven for thinking that the serpent merely tried to have the woman eat from the forbidden tree. But look closely at the words he says. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Note the subtle deception that's already present. If we look back at, uh, at what God said, this isn't what he said at all. This subtle distortion is just the beginning because, because as the story unfolds, we see a little more. The woman said to the serpent... We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, "You must not eat from the tree from there. Yeah, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die." Let's go back and look at what God said in Genesis chapter two. The Lord God put man, uh, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Even at this point, we can see the serpent and Eve distorting the rules that God had given them. God's command in Genesis 2 was simple. And it's worth pausing and observing just how easy it is for sin to creep in. We often think that the first time that Adam and Eve ever get it wrong is when they actually eat of the fruit. But it happens even earlier than that, when they begin to distort God's commands. And if we look at our own lives, it's not that hard to see us doing the same thing as well. We know God's law. We study it. We learn from it. We teach it to our families and our children. But sometimes, even without thinking, We accidentally add to the law. We make new rules about what we can wear, about what we can say, or how we can act in certain situations. But the danger is this. If we aren't careful, we end up distorting God's word and creating a greater opportunity for sin. We run the risk of legalism, setting up lines beyond what God intended and creating a gospel of works that we need to keep. We should as a church and individuals continually examine our lives, our teaching and our doctrine and make sure that we are preaching, teaching and living in line with God's commands and not adding to them. Jesus spoke about this when he spoke about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Matthew 23, when he said that they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Conversely, we need to be careful that we don't go the other way. Because just as we can be tempted to add to the law, we can also be tempted to subtract from it. We know that this side of Jesus' death, the law is fulfilled in him. And so we may be tempted to assume that the Bible's teaching on this issue or that issue is no longer relevant to us today and excuse ourselves from the need to obey it. So how do we protect ourselves from distorting God's commands? We need to get to know them deeply. We need to immerse ourselves in God's words as they're contained in Scripture. We need to study it and to know it inside out. We need to encourage and challenge and rebuke each other as we read it and as we talk about it. For as we do this, the Spirit will work in our lives to challenge, teach, mould and train us. The story continues... The serpent says you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The irony of the serpent's words. Man was already created in the very image of God. He was already like God because it says in Genesis 1, so man created God in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man was already like God and already knew of God's righteous commands. The man and woman already knew that to disobey God was death. They already knew about good and evil. It should have been sufficient for Eve to know that God had spoken and deemed that they were to not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the extent of what she needed to know. But she craved more. She craved a deeper, secret, forbidden knowledge, a knowledge that she thought she needed to be like God. And when we dig further, deeper into this, we begin to see what this is for what it really is, the temptation to remove God from his rightful place as the ruler over our lives and elevate ourselves, our wishes, and our desires to be the ones in control. Friends, this is idolatry. Not idolatry in the sense of worshipping an idol made out of stone or wood, but idolatry in the sense of elevating ourselves to be our own God. As scripture unfolds, we see this pattern time and time again. God's people being led astray by their own desire to rule their own lives, not just committing sins, but seeking to replace God with themselves. Their own selfishness being more important than divine submission their own desires and creation more important than the glory of God, the Creator. And this is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, when he says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And we still do this today. Every time we choose to disobey God, when we ignore the calling of the Spirit of our lives to be obedient... We implicitly say that our own thoughts, actions, and desires are greater than the will of God who made us. We shove God aside and put our own selfish wills in his place. Instead of doing the things that we know we should do, we instead act according to our own desires and behaviour. We make a God of ourselves. Friends, where we see this behaviour in our life, we need to stop and repent. We need to recognize it for what it is and seek God's help to change. We need to cast aside our own selfishness and instead look to Jesus. Because idolatry is insidious. It perverts our good intentions, our thoughts, and our actions, and can even take the good things that we try and do and make them selfish actions that are contrary for God's will in our lives. But we can't stop here. And the story continues, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. There are so many things at this point we need to notice that are wrong. To start with, we need to look at Eve's description of the tree. Genesis 2 tells us that when God planted the garden, the plants and the trees in the garden were good for food. They were in paradise, the paradise of God's creation. Every plant was pleasing to the eye. It was all good. But suddenly, for Eve, the forbidden tree that was not to be eaten from was the thing that was good for food and pleasing to the eye at the apparent exclusion of every other tree in the garden. We see the magnifying effects of sin here. It clouds out what is good. We become so preoccupied with our sinful actions and our desires, how they will give us delight or fulfill our perception of our needs, that we fail to appreciate what God has given us and provided for us. And at this point, we need to stop and look at our own lives again. We need to ask what things, what actions What thoughts, what habits or deeds we are seeking to find fulfillment in? What are we doing and dedicating ourselves to that blind us to seeing the good that God has already provided us? Maybe it's a desire for recognition from others. Maybe it's pride in our work. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's a desire for love. Maybe it's a desire for trust or friendship, Maybe it's a desire for your spouse. Maybe it's a desire for your kids. Maybe it's wealth and security. Each of these things aren't bad in their own right. They are things that God can provide for us and does provide for us in varying ways and at varying times. But when we idolize them, when we focus on them, we can want them more than anything else. And when we do, we become just like Eve in the garden ignoring the good blessings that God has already provided us, and instead focusing on our own selves and our own desires. We become idolatrous. Friends, if our sin is crowding out God, we need to recognize it and stop. We need to see it for what it is and drag it into the light. We need to recognize the temptation towards idolatry of these things and commit our failings in them to God. We need to ask God to help us recognise the good things he has given us, and that he will help us to stop seeking fulfilment in others. But we know that we're powerless to change on our own. We know that we need his help to do this, to keep our focus and our perspectives right. Coming back to the story, perhaps our biggest question that should be standing out to us at the moment is where is Adam in all of this? When we see it, the answer is distressing. In the second half of verse 6, it says, Eve also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. He was right there. He was with Eve the whole time. You'd be forgiven for assuming up to this point that he was off somewhere else in the garden, pruning a hedge or trimming a rose. (laughs) But Eve didn't take the fruit to him and deceive him into eating it. There was no switcheroony deception going on here. Both Adam and Eve were together. And all through this, Adam did and said nothing. There are no words of warning. No, hey, are you sure about this? It's not really a good idea. No reminder of God's divine command. No mention of the relationship that he had with them. No thought of the consequences of their actions. Adam showed no leadership. He showed no care for the gravity of the actions that were about to take place. Just silence. This abject failure is a pivotal illustration of what's going on here. Adam was charged with caring for the garden and ruling over God's creation. He was given God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He should have been caring for all of creation, protecting it and looking after it. Instead, he disobeys the command that he has been given from God. When we look a bit further and we look at how all of of this happened, what we're seeing is a reversal of the created order, rather than God ruling mankind who rules over creation. We see creation deceiving mankind who in turn put themselves in the place of God. And then everything changes. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed figs together and made coverings for themselves. Fig leaves rather than figs. Probably an important distinction. In my mind... This moment should probably be more dramatic. I have visions of the sky darkening, of clouds coming over, and I almost expect lightning to flash and Adam and Eve to quake with fear as the ominous music begins playing, alerting them and everybody else watching from the sidelines at the gravity of their actions. But instead, it's basically recorded in Genesis as a fate accompli. Adam and Eve lose their innocence. They become aware of their nakedness. And for the first time in human history, shame enters the fabric of the human existence. All without fanfare, all without trumpets, without thunder, without lightning, without even a moment's notice. It's hard to imagine what would have been going through their heads at this point but I guess they probably felt guilt at having done the wrong thing. Perhaps surprised that they did not die immediately. Perhaps an air of personal superiority as they believed they had become aware, like their creator. But it's true that sin often grabs us like this. We know God's righteous commands about what we should do, and instead we choose to act according to our own will. We might do the wrong thing and know that it's wrong, We expect some level of divine judgment or consequence immediately, some flashing red light or the heavens to open or a spotlight to appear on our lives, but instead are surprised when we don't see the immediate consequences of our sin. But the guilt and the shame creep in, and we, like Adam and Eve, feel the need to hide from ourselves. And as we see next... Also from God. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" And the man said, "The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it." Then the Lord God said to the woman, "What is it that you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me and I ate." When confronted with their sin, Adam and Eve, instead of repenting and owning up to what they did, hid. You would think that when they were directly confronted by the Creator, Adam might have, like Isaiah, fallen down and begged for mercy, confessing his sin. You would think that they would have sought forgiveness for what they had done. But instead, they hide. And then they shift the blame. The man isn't prepared to take responsibility for his actions, even though he was there. Even though he was equally to blame, he pushes it all onto the woman. And the woman, instead of taking responsibility for her action, pushes it onto the serpent, a created being who they were supposed to rule over. But we don't have to look very hard to see this same behavior in our own lives. I am the parent of three beautiful children. But not a day goes by where Tim or Josh try to push the blame for the things that they have done onto the other one. And as I look at my own life and failings, I can see how quick I am to blame others, a circumstance or a situation, putting my own weaknesses and wrongdoings from me onto anyone or anything else. We've walked back through this story But the point that we've been illustrating is this. By the time that Adam and Eve had finally eaten the fruit, they had already sinned. Lots of things had happened small actions, small inactions, but in each one, they had already acted against the divine mandate they were given in Genesis Genesis 2. Adam and Eve were not caring for creation. Adam was not caring for his wife. Eve did not honour the commands from God they had been given. They submitted to the authority of creation rather than God. Their actions and words show that they did not trust God. Often we simply view sin as the breaking of the rules that God has set. We're tempted to see our transgressions as doing something, just like we see Adam and Eve's transgressions as merely eating the fruit And equally, we imagine if we we could only do a better job of knowing the right thing to do, we could make better, more right choices in our lives, choices that would lead and result in us sinning less. But what we see in Genesis 3 is a pattern of sin that extends beyond simple rule-breaking. Adam and Eve's actions fractured the very fabric of their relationship with God. And it happened quickly, almost wordlessly. Last week, James explained the covenantal pattern of creation and the covenant that God had established between himself and mankind. A covenant that he would graciously provide food, shelter, and humankind's every need. And in response to that provision, they would be obedient to him. The covenant wasn't conditional on man's obedience. God did not say, I will do this for you, and in return you will do this for me. But it was a but the action of man was a necessary response to the relationship that existed between God and humankind. And so, in this vein, I want to suggest that we need to refocus our view of sin, and not simply view it as a set of wrong things, but instead to start seeing it for its deeper, more fundamental problem, a relational rift between us and God, a fracturing of the relationship that he created at the very, very start of the world. In Adam and Eve's actions, they perverted the divine relationship that they were supposed to have, and instead of being God's image-bearer, ruling and mediating between God and creation, they declared a war on the holy God, a rule of who should rightly rule. And their sin had eternal consequences because Adam was the covenantal representative of all of humankind in God's creation. This covenant, and in turn, all of creation was marred. As Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death became, came to all men, because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. There, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. So where are we at? Creation is turned upside down. Creation is ruling the actions of man who were destined to rule in God's image. Man, who is created in the image of God, has instead made itself God. Innocence, and with it the beauty of the perfect creation, has been tarnished in a way that simply can't be undone. Nakedness, shame, and guilt have entered the very fabric of human existence. Humanity has become enslaved to sin in a way that can't be mended, fixed, or Or repaired the perfect relationship that man had with God has been tarnished and broken in a way that can't be fixed and with this backdrop we see the full effect and judgment that follows from Adam and Eve's actions through the curses for as much as the introduction of shame and guilt was the internal personal damage done by sin the effects of Adam and Eve's actions were felt by all of creation First, God speaks to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." At first glance, it seems that the curse against the serpent is merely something that gives rise as to why humans hate snakes. But it's deeper than that. Where humans were to care and look after all of the creatures in God's creation, now there is a permanent divide, a permanent break in the relationship between man and the created world. We see in this curse not just a pronouncement on the judgment on the creature that deceived Eve, but rather a judgment on the work that man was ordained to do at the very start of creation. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. In this next snapshot of the created order being frustrated, in this, see yeah. Let me start that again. In this, we see the next sap snapshot of the created order being frustrated. Instead of it being easy for humankind to fulfil God's command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, childbearing is now a painful experience, forever marred by sin. Not only that, but the perfect relationship between husband and wife, helping each other in perfect harmony has been marred by trouble and anguish, a constant battle for control and headship. Next, we see what God says to Adam. He says, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Finally, man is now frustrated in his ability to fulfill his created task, to subdue the earth and work it. Instead of it being a joy to plant, tend, and care for the created order, he must now work through pain, through thorns and thistles, Instead of the perfectly created garden which must be tended, work is now done outside of the garden with thorns and thistles. But even in the midst of these curses, we see God's continued provision of grace. While death is now part of the human existence, we see that God continues to provide for humans, humankind's sustenance. When he, while he banishes man from the garden, he doesn't remove their ability to work or to eat. While marriage is now marred with the effects of sin and broken relationship, it's still made a joyous union between man and woman. While childbirth is filled with pain, we still have the joy and blessings of children. While there is now a division between us and the created world, we can continue to care for it and share the joy of looking after it. And in the midst of all of this, Do we assume that Genesis 3 was a giant wrinkle in God's cosmic plan for the world? No, we don't. The great promise that is buried in there is in those two wonderful lines. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. These two lines are the full foreshadowing of God's plan to ultimately redeem humanity. As Paul says in Romans 5, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will be made righteousness. Or again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. For while sin and death came into the world through one man, God knew that he must also provide a solution, a solution that delivered new life for all that he created. Jesus' work is greater than simply destroying sin and death. As Paul says in Romans 8, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. See, Adam and Eve's actions were the fruit of their hearts, hearts that did not fully and completely trust their creator. Hearts that were open to being corrupted by sin. Hearts that were already seeking not seeking to put God first in everything that they did. And it's through this lens that we can see the full majesty of the great work of Jesus, work that through his death gives us a new heart. A heart that only seeks to please the living God, that is no longer corrupted by sin, that is restored even better than the original creation. The prophet Ezekiel spoke about this when he said, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. For it's not enough for sin to be merely defeated. God's plan all along was that man would be recreated with hearts that willingly sought to serve him. For Scripture teaches us that it is only through the redemption, suffering, and perseverance that God's work is completed in us. And in doing so, the new creation is made better than the first creation. We were children of the first Adam, children with hearts of flesh and blood, children with hearts that could be corrupted and marred and tainted by sin. But we've become children of the second Adam, Jesus, when he renews our hearts. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. For the first man uh, was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall also bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound... And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has finally been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We've seen that the sin of death is sin, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I can't do anything better but to quote the final words of Paul in this chunk where he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at our lives, we see that they are marred and stained with sin. We see that we try and do good things, but the good things that we do are never enough in and of themselves to please you. We seek To do the right thing, we seek to follow your commands. And we know that we struggle and we fail day after day. But Lord God, you saw this when you made the world. You knew that this would happen. And Lord God, your plan was always to create in us new hearts. Hearts that sought after you. Hearts that were made in the image of your son, Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for your great salvation work in sending him to earth to die for us and to save us. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to repent from our sin. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see the areas in our life where we are acting contrary to what you have commanded us to. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see the areas in our life where we are acting idolatrous, towards you, where we are placing our own selfish desires above your commands and your desires for us. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see the places where we have broken our relationship with you and where we continue to do that. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to repent. We pray that you would help us to not try to hide our sin from you, but Lord God, that we would constantly drag it into the open and into your light. And Lord God, we thank you for the forgiveness that is found in your Son. We thank you that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. We thank you that he has recreated our hearts and given us hearts that seek to serve you, hearts that seek to know you. And Lord God, we look forward to the day when your redemptive work is finally complete, when we are raised imperishable as part of your new creation when all things are made new and the world is as you truly intended it to be. And we can, together with all of the saints, sing and praise your name for all eternity. Amen.